Today on United Methodists, we will speak with Professor Moon Dushan of Tufts University about mathematical gerrymandering. Okay, sure. Uh, my name is Moon Dushan, and I'm an associate professor of math at Tufts University. How did you originally get involved with math? With math? Oh, um, I have wanted to do math ever since I was a little kid, actually. It's like, I think I, I'm one of those, you know, when you're a kid, you want to be an astronaut or maybe you want to be president. And then I went right to mathematician from there. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, I think I'm, by the time I was seven or something, I already had in my head that this is what I was going to do with my life. Oh, wow. So you knew pretty early on, really. Yeah, I would say. So most of your research is pretty pure, right? It, it focuses Definitely. in geometric group theory and topology. So how did you make the transition to gerrymandering and studying that from a mathematical perspective? Right, yeah. It's my first foray into applied math. Um, yeah, I got into this through teaching voting theory. And um, I did that last year, and I, I was teaching it during the presidential primary. And so it seemed crazy not to talk about current events, you know, and I have a fairly political bent anyway, and being a geometer, it seemed natural to um, try to understand how geometry has something to say about voting. And the natural way to do that is to think about shapes of districts. So I definitely got into it through teaching it. Um, As I did, I learned that the subject of shapes of districts is much more convoluted and complicated than I thought. When I set out, I thought I'd kind of find the canonical piece of writing on this and assign that, and that would be the end. And then gradually I realized that it had been some time since mathematicians had made a serious geometric intervention in redistricting. So I recently went to a town hall in Utah for a representative out here, and it was held in Salt Lake. And I was really surprised because we had people from like almost the border, right, in in the same town hall. So I was kind of surprised. So I looked into the shapes here, and and like you're saying, we had these super jagged, bizarre shapes. So with the new advances in, in mathematical techniques for this sort of thing, can we expect the shapes to be more normalized or are we still going to have these kind of funny shapes? Right. Well, okay. So I have a few thoughts about that. One thing is that shapes that take like slices of cities and stretch all the way out into the country at first glance, those seem like something nefarious must be going on, but actually it's really difficult to slice up cities fairly because cities all over the country, including in red states like Utah, cities like Salt Lake, are blue, are Democratic voting. And so if you don't slice up the city, you get what's called a packed district of Democrats. You get far more than 50% Democrats, typically, and that creates wasted votes on one side. So if you're paying attention to partisan gerrymandering, you really need to split the cities in order to get the proportions down to something that doesn't feel packed. Um, So that's one thing to say when you start getting into how to divide things up fairly, you quickly realize that you're going to have to slice through cities and combine them with some rural areas. Um, So, you know, that that for me, that was a bit of an epiphany because at first the the idea that you might need a district that stretches all the way out to the country seems inherently unfair. 
Um, right. But, you know, past that, I would say, as a mathematician looking at uh, congressional districts now, now when I think about shape analysis, I don't just think about the contours of the boundary because what really matters is how the population is being divided. So there's this whole like graph of population, graph in the sense of nodes and edges, a graph of population on the interior. And a lot of the action in the shape analysis has to do with what's going on inside and not just sort of the contour of the, of the district. Does that make sense? Mm, so the funny shapes might be here to stay, but they'll be more fair than they have been in the past. Is that fair? <laughs> that's, that's, a, that's, a, that's a good way to put it. Um, I would say it's always going to be possible to make fun of the shapes because you're going to be able to make them look bad by just drawing their contours. But if you pay attention to what's going on in the guts of the shape, you might find that it's actually reasonable. Um, so I think that what my group is hoping to do is bring some math to this in a way that will make things more fair. And I think that, you know, as a corollary of that, you're also going to make the shapes more attractive looking. Um, but that's a sort of second order concern, right? And so the fairness is primary and the attractiveness is secondary. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So I, I was wondering if you could explain like one of these kind of basic geometric concepts that, that can be applied to make it more fair. And I, I think maybe compactness of the district has had some coverages in places like the Washington Post. Or yeah. I think the, the efficiency gap is also gaining traction in the mainstream media. Um, so I was wondering mm -hmm. if you could speak to one or both of those. Sure. Yeah. Um, so let me, maybe not everybody knows what the efficiency gap is. So let me say a quick word about that. Um, efficiency gap is only a metric you can apply to partisan balance. It's only about D's versus R's. But compactness is, um, is a way to think about whether the line drawer had a hidden agenda of any kind. So for instance, racial gerrymandering can be detected often by the, the shapes of the districts, but efficiency gap is blind to that. So it's first, first thing to say is that it's a more specialized tool. It's only for one kind of gerrymandering. Mm, okay. right? And the way efficiency gap works is that you look at the two parties, D's and R's, or let's call them A's and B's, and you look at how many votes they wasted. So I, I kind of gave an indication of that a minute ago when I said if you pack lots of A's into a district, like 90% A's, you're wasting a lot of A votes because you only need 50% to win. Right, right. right. Um, so efficiency gap is all about looking at two parties and seeing who has wasted more votes in a plan. Right, because if, if party B is really trying to gerrymander, they're going to create lots of districts where A wastes votes. And so there'll be a lopsided vote wastage. Yeah. And that's exactly all that that's, that's the sum total of what efficiency gap does. It compares the vote wastage on the two sides. I um, that makes sense. Yeah. So, um, yeah, my, my collaborator and I recently published an article about this where we kind of took a mathematician's pencil to the, efficiency gap idea and try to understand what's sort of really going on below the surface when you count up vote wastage. And um, we ended up deciding that it's a statistic that really doesn't capture a whole lot. If you just pay attention to efficiency gap, you'll get a lot of false positives and a lot of false negatives for partisan gerrymandering even. Um, still, we think that the case that's going to the Supreme Court this fall, the Wisconsin case that's made efficiency gap famous, mm, yeah. um, 
we think it should be decided in favor of the plaintiffs. We think that Wisconsin is incredibly gerrymandered. And so, you know, we argue that mathematicians should view efficiency gap as a good first step, but as a call to refine it and come up with better metrics of partisan gerrymandering. Mm. Um, so that's efficiency gap. Um, so like I said, shapes are sort of more general because they can pick up any time you're trying to rig an outcome. It's going to cause you to have to draw funny shapes. I mean, I don't know if the reason for that is totally intuitive. Maybe it is. But uh, if I had to explain that, I'd say it's because if you want to rig an outcome, you need to carefully compose the demographics of your district, just carefully balance and make sure you're squeezing out as many wins as possible. And that means you're going to have to lasso some populations together with some others, and that's going to cause contorted shapes. You see what I'm saying? Right, exactly. So right now, who actually draws these maps? Right. So the U.S. is interesting this way. We have 50 states, and in this, as in many things, they kind of get to make their own rule. Um, so the Constitution gives no guidance to that. And so a lot of states do it different ways. Um, there's about six states that have independent, politically independent commissions that draw the line. But that's not a lot. No, that's, that's <laughs> Famously, really California is one of them. Um, in most of the other states, it's under the legislature's direct control. Um, in Texas, the maps are drawn by partisan elected judges. So <laughs> judges run for office as a D or an R, and then they draw the maps. That right? doesn't sound great. It doesn't sound great, but at least that's one step removed from state legislators drawing their own districts, which is still the prevailing model. Um, yeah, so that that's definitely in need of reform, and we're starting to see that reform movement get some traction, taking the line drawing out of the hands of the elected officials. So your upcoming conference at, at Tufts is focused on training mathematicians as expert witnesses. So I, I wanted to ask you, what sort of skills are, are these people looking to pick up to explain these pretty complex mathematical ideas to people like lawyers and judges that maybe don't have the same background? Right. Well, um, I do want to see more mathematicians in the courtroom as experts. Um, but as I've learned since getting really plunged into this project, there's a lot more to being an expert witness than just your testimony. Um, so first you start with a report. So you, you have a written report in which you state your findings and defend them. And then there's a deposition where the opposing lawyers get to grill you and try to make you look silly. <laughs> and then finally you get to court and you have some testimony. And so the most technical stuff might not even appear in your testimony. It might be in your report, but never um, come into play in your testimony. So I don't think it's the case that every mathematical idea, you, you know, that we should visualize some sort of law and order episode with negative curvature on the stand. <laughs> it's not necessarily the model that I have in mind. But, um, but I do think that cutting edge math ideas can inform the metrics behind the scenes um, they go into the reports, whether or not they end up kind of dramatically aired in court itself. How soon do you think people that are attending this conference are going to get into the courtroom? Well, look, one thing is if we're lucky, we'll get a small proportion of them actually into, mm. into cases. Um, it's, it's very, being an expert witness is, is quite a challenging gig. It's done on a demanding timeline. 
you have to do things very quickly. Um, you don't know when a case is ever over because there can be a whole series of appeals. Mm-hmm. It's not very compatible with an academic day job as right. a professor because, you know. <laughs> um, and then there's the, the, the actual, the depositions are extremely hostile. I've heard them described as like, an all-day job interview where everyone wants you to fail. Oh, wow. <laughs> um, <laughs> so the whole process is, it's not for everyone. So we're doing this five-workshop cycle. The one in Boston is mm-hmm. first, and then we're, we're doing some regional workshops. And I hope that in the whole sweep of five workshops, we'll, we'll maybe reach something like 100 people. And, you know, if, if 15 to 20 of them end up becoming expert witnesses all considered a, a big success. Great. Um, and as to your question, how soon? Um, we've already had several litigation shops reach out to us and ask if we have people who are ready to go. Oh, wow. So, yeah. So I can say the demand is there. <laughs> um, and I, I think we're pulling together the right kinds of uh, trainers to really uh, prepare people to be very effective. So I have, I have high hopes. United Methodist is affiliated with KRCL in Salt Lake City.